Hello, and welcome to the Homeschooling and Loving It podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, your friend at homeschool.com and homeschool mom of six. Join us as we keep it real and chat about the ups and downs of this amazing adventure we call the homeschool life. So grab a cup of your warm favorite and a comfy chair and let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to homeschool.com's Homeschooling and Loving It podcast. We're on episode 40, and today we are talking about classical homeschooling. For many homeschoolers, our desire to homeschool springs from a priority to give our children a different or more unique educational experience. However, sometimes it really can be challenging to find a clear path to accomplishing just that. Well, here today to talk with us about how classical education could be the right path for us is Lee Morton from Classical Conversations. Welcome, Lee. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for having me. And I love your title because I think I love homeschooling more than anybody. Mm, I know. Me too. I don't know. We might have to argue over that one. Yeah. (laughs) But Lee is joining us today from Southern Pines, North Carolina. And of course, I'm here in, well, today, not so sunny Georgia. Mm -hmm. Love how technology works and how we can connect across the country through these mutual interests. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce Lee today. Lee is a nationally acclaimed educator and founder of Classical Conversations. If you've been in homeschooling for any length of time, you have heard of Classical Conversations. Lee holds a degree in aerospace engineering, as well as a D-Min from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Hamilton, Massachusetts. She has published several books, including The Core, The Question, and the Conversation, a series which explores the classical trivium from a parent's perspective. Lee is currently working on developing a math curriculum that maps the structure of learning K-4 through 12th math from a classical Christian perspective. Yet all of her emphasis on the enjoyment of learning and fundamentals of education stem from her experience homeschooling her four boys. So we are very excited to have Lee as a guest today. Thank you so much. Yay, we're glad you're here. So my first question, which I always love to hear this part of our podcast, as a fellow homeschooling mama, I'm always interested how other mamas got started in their life's work, their calling. So Lee, can you tell us your story and how you embarked on this, sounds like an amazing journey that brought you to classical education? Sure, Jamie, you know, how many minutes do I have? Because I could go pretty far <laughs> in a lot of detail, um, but I'll you know keep the keep it to the high points. So one thing I have to I always think about is um, one of the reasons I homeschool is I had an amazing mother and father, and even though we weren't homeschooled, as soon as we got home, my mom was all about the learning adventure, and all four of us were just raised to be very curious and active in a, you know a myriad of areas. And so when um, my husband and I were pregnant with our first son, Robert, he was not real excited about sending the kids to public school for different reasons than I was and wasn't quite sure what we were going to do about it. And um, I stumbled upon the Phil Donahue show at a mall. Wow. And I watched this funny episode about this family that was homeschooling. And 
I was with a girlfriend. And so we just stood there and we watched about, you know, 10 minutes of it. And she looked at me and said, I would never do that. And I looked at her and said, well, it's really weird, but I think we're going to do that. And I wow. went home and told my husband I'd stumbled on this thing called homeschooling. And he was like, I am so relieved. I didn't know what in the world we were going to do with our kids. And so, you know, we, I was just pregnant at the time. And we were already considering, you know, what were the best ways to pass on our values, which was strong in academics at that time, um, even before we had them, because Rob and I met in university and, uh, you know, we got married while we we're still in school and finished our degrees there. So that's kind of what the impetus was to get us going on it. And then before my um, Robert was four or five years old, there was no homeschooling curriculum. And the folks that people consider as, you know, kind of pioneers in homeschooling, um, the Christian schools like Abeka and Bob Jones who had, you know, good curriculum, they wouldn't sell it to us. So we were forced to be eclectic in the way we did things. I fortunately lived in Seattle at that time, and that's where Mike Ferris and Mike Smith were starting um, HSLDA. And so we had really good conferences early on in that state. And so I met up with other homeschooling moms, and we actually would pay professors to teach us how to teach our children. Oh my, wow. So, you know, for two reasons. One, because there weren't a lot of resources aimed at us, and two, a lot of people homeschool all along, very academically minded. And so we think, okay, well, the academics taught us, so let's go back to them again. And it was just really great that there was a Christian university in town that offered some classes on things like phonics and Latin and um, how to teach uh, preschool math. And we were all, you know, young mamas with young kids. And so one of the things I always tell parents, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first. You need to teach yourself some things so that you're always like a, five minutes ahead of your children. Absolutely. And during those preschool years, where really they're just all playing and you're just encouraging them to be part of the family and part of your own, own culture. Uh, that's really, to me, was the best time that, you know, I, I, I loved learning and being with other adults. And so taking a class here and there to get ready for it was um, just, it was easy to do. And that's how I made homeschooling friends. And uh, still two of those women I went to those courses with are my best friends still today. That's how it got started. But you know, that, that story right there really gives um, homeschoolers today some perspective, you know, as a pioneer, so to speak, of, of homeschooling, you know, when you had no curriculum, you pretty much had to start from scratch. Today, we're flooded with curriculum. So it really gives me a great appreciation for you paving the way, so to speak, for all of us. Thank you. You know, and when I travel around the world, which I do a lot now, well, at least before COVID, I did to work with other homeschooling countries, try, or countries that are trying to get homeschooling going, they often come to me and say, you know, but we have no curriculum. And that's how we felt back then, too. So right. I can appreciate the question. But now that I've been homeschooling for over 35 years, everybody has so much curriculum, it's ridiculous <laughs> because the Lord God developed it for us. And all you have to do, no matter where you live, is walk outside and start paying attention to the world. And you have a science curriculum. All you need to do is read your Bible, your hymns, your folklore, your poetry of your country, and you have a literature curriculum. We are so immersed in this idea of state education that's accredited that we don't notice the rich resources that are given to all of us. We have been left with such an abundance of things to study and learn. 
And one of the reasons I think a lot of us homeschool is we felt there was this false education going on in an institutional school. And we wanted to recover this idea of being able to just walk out our door and enjoy life with our children and pass on our beliefs as well as our knowledge to them. Absolutely. And I love how you put that, the rich curriculum that's just right outside our door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've always had this like affinity in my mind for this woman I've made up and I pray for her. I don't even know who she is, but there's some woman in India that's been homeschooling right alongside of me who has no money and no resources. And I think I pick on India because I went there at the beginning of my homeschooling journey. And I kept thinking if the Lord's given her what she needs to raise her children well for him, he apparently has done the same for me. And so what would her resources be? And then I think, okay, I have the same ones because I know he's not left anybody without resources. He provides for all of us. And so it's kind of helped me to, that's kind of like the paradigm breaker that I used all these years so that I wouldn't go back and fall into the um, public school mode of education. But I would try to think through what are the things that make it so that anybody can teach anybody anything. And that's why where I stumbled into classical education because the whole model of classical education was based on this thing called the humanities, the subjects that make us human, mm-hmm. and the liberal arts. What are the unified arts that make it so you can study any subject? And they're all, again, at our resources. There are resources available to all of us, but the last hundred years of um, public education has kind of drummed them out of us, and we don't even recognize that we have these natural giftings. You mentioned a little bit how classical education differs from traditional education, which is kind of, to me, it seems like kind of a sticking point because weren't our founding fathers classically educated? They had the same resources my Indian friend does. Exactly. So (laughs) in, in the time from our founding fathers to today's modern version of traditional, what we call traditional education, Sure. A shift, hasn't there? Um, so we've moved away from that classical education would technically be considered the traditional or the original form of education here in America. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Is it's not just in America, it's worldwide. Right? It's the same stuff that the Greeks and the Romans used. Yes. Same thing as medievalists, monks in the Catholic Church, uh, you know, Orthodox uh, priests in the East would use this model. And it, it just turns out it's such a natural human model that you kind of have to use it, whether you know you are or not, if you're learning anything. Can you really give us a good introduction, kind of break it down, uh, very simple terms for all of us homeschool mamas to understand and really comprehend what this method of classical education is and maybe how we can even begin to implement it in our own homeschools? Well, thank you. I would love to do that. It's always hard to do without using a lot of classical ease. And so I've been trying to think of ways to (laughs) to people where it's just uh, obviously common sense and a way that they can hang on to it. So I hope that this helps. So the first thing is to take into account what every mother and father knows is that your children are wired to learn language. That's how they learn to speak their mother tongue, right? They're just born ready to do that. And the way that they do that, they learn their mother tongue is through a lot of repetition, right? How many times do you have to tell them no? And really quickly, they learn the name of the dog, right? And they, you know, they say their brother's name before they say mama or dada. And you're like, oh, shucks. (laughs) But all those things happen because somebody has said to this very young child, 
the same words over and over. And as they begin to um, develop this bank of words in their head, they also begin to see what the structure of these words are and how they relate to one another. Well, what tends to happen is all parents speak to their children in a similar kind of way till they're about four or five years old. And then something happens. The family unit breaks and the children go off elsewhere to some kind of program. And so parents stop doing what they were doing all along. So what a classical model calls that is a grammar education. And so we as classicalists know that anytime our children are coming across a new idea or a new task or something that we want them to do that they're not proficient in, we need to use a lot of words and a lot of demonstrations, a lot of pats on the back, a lot of smiles, so that it becomes intuitive to them and part of their natural repertoire, just like their other languages. So the reason I say people stop is that when your kids are little, you're pointing out to them, you know, birds and counting steps and you're showing them pictures and books and attaching words to that. All those things every parent does naturally is the beginning of good education. And the thing is, if you would just continue it as your children got older, doing the same thing you've always done, you'll start to find out that they ask more and more questions and they have more and more interests, all of which gives you an opportunity to express more and more ideas to them. And so this is why conversation is such an important part of the classical model. It's not just about reading books. It's not just about learning literature or Latin. It's having somebody on the journey with you in order to help you move from step to step. And that's what God created parents for, was to bring children up, you know, from infancy to a place where you can release them in adulthood. So I say that because I want parents to know that the grammar stage is what you, you have been doing anyway. It's nothing new you have to practice. You just have to remember to keep doing it. All right? Is that helpful, Jamie? Very helpful. I've never, you know, gone three college degrees and I've never heard it put that way. Love it. I love the comparison of how some children stop and go to school and kind of interrupts that natural flow that you're talking about of how they just grow into asking and learning and it's such a natural thing. Because then what happens is, you know, your child comes back from school and they have a question, something they're excited about that they learned in school and mama or dad are going, that's not something I really know anything about. Mm -hmm. And they begin to lose confidence. Yeah. And there was no reason to lose confidence because if the child had stayed home and, and asked those questions as you go about life, you would be going, oh, that's an interesting question. Let's go find out about it. Absolutely. Right. And so we call that the logic or the dialectic stage in classical education. So it's hard to ask a question or be curious about something you know very little about you need to at least know something. So for instance, I would not go investigate teaching my child to blow glass if they didn't know that vases were made out of blowing, from blowing glass. So they need a few words, a few grammatical ideas in order for them to say, well, how do you do that, right? And so the grammar leads really naturally into asking questions on the things that they're curious about. So that's the dialectic stage, and I can explain more later on that if we have time, but I just want to show this natural progression. 
So even your three-year-old, your four-year-old might have spent the day at the beach or with a friend or playing Dolly or whatever it was. And that playtime is where they're building both their grammar, they're talking about it, they're enjoying it, they're learning new words, as well as an interest and excitement and having some questions about it. What is Dolly going to eat today? Why did that bird have a red beak when the other one had a yellow beak? Right, those kind of questions and they find out some answers and then daddy comes home from work and they say daddy 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 listen to what we did today that's the rhetoric when you share with people the things that you've learned that's it wow all of us do that every day very very enlightening to be honest with you i've read and i've even personally looked into classical education and it's just been so confusing at times This has made it absolutely simple and connected all the dots for me. Well, thanks, Jamie, because then what ends up happening is as a parent, you love your children. And so you say to yourself, all right, I want you to learn how to read. I love you. Reading opens up so many doors. So let me think, how can I do that? I know there's this thing called phonics. Let's just like we memorize words about play, sit by each other and cuddle up and get a book in front of us and very slowly point out that these squiggles can represent sounds, right? So I'm building the grammar. I'm giving them ideas in their head. And then they make it to a harder word like, you know, enough and go, mama, uh, this doesn't feel like it should say enough. Why does it say enough, right? Right. So then they have the question. Well, if you would continue that kind of education throughout their middle school years, all of a sudden, Shakespeare, the King James Bible, stoichiometry and chemistry, uh, you know, hard, hard ideas now become approachable because they've learned first break it down into what are the squiggles or the words or the sentence or the idea? What does it mean? Right? Let me understand that. Let me ask some questions about it. And I just kept building up my own memoria, my own repertoire of ideas. Uh, Doug Wilson calls it, we want to develop copious ideas, copious words with our young children, because then that's what gives them access to what people then think are the hard things in a classical education, which is original source documents. It's very hard to jump into reading Shakespeare if you haven't first read a lot of good, say, Newbery literature books or magazines and newspapers that talk about big ideas and then have conversations with other people about them. So what tends to happen is most people think education's easy through about eighth grade, and then they wonder why high school's so hard. It's because you didn't do what I call milk the cow. Every day, a little bit of conversation without fail. Every day, a little bit of studying. You know, every day, a little bit of sharing. And that over um, 12, 13 years of a child's uh, initial development, you're just going to raise adults who know how to think and high school content becomes much broader and wider and deeper in what they have access to. I admit, I've read about grammar, I've read about the logic and dialectic stage and the rhetoric stage, but it all seems so difficult. Maybe it was the the words themselves that were somewhat intimidating, or maybe I was thinking, Adam, thinking that they had to just be so much more complex than what you just laid out for us. Yeah, because, you know, so once you say it to this child, okay, you know, I want to teach you to read, and I went through that conversation with them, Mm -hmm. with with this audience, then you might say, all right, well, you know what, Um, our background's Hungarian, let's learn something about Hungary, or maybe I want you to learn Latin, 
Well, what do you do? The exact same thing. You get a Latin word and you get another one and another one and you, you use concrete images and you have them memorize some things. And that's building up their grammar to the point where they start saying, okay, well, why are there these different endings on the word for cat? And you can research that question and figure out what the system is to it. So they're becoming dialectic. And then the rhetoric, of course, is when they can actually translate a sentence out loud to you. And so, of course, it's in a different language. So there's a struggle with that. And so some parents may say, but I don't know a foreign language. Well, at this point in time, Jamie's there a lot of excuse on that and that there's so many, you know, video resources and book resources and that the parents think they have to know the language ahead of time, but they don't. They have to know how to learn the language because then you can learn it with your child and you all know how to learn a language if you think really hard because you all learned your mother tongue. So you need yeah. to think about what do I do to acquire new words in English? I bet you you do the same thing to find new words in Spanish. So what we don't recognize is we have within us the art of learning and we think it's something that's done to us rather than something that the Lord's put within us because he wants us to find him. And so he's yes. given us the tools to do that. And it takes the intimidation out of it when we apply what you said about just staying five minutes ahead of the kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love it when you yeah. You're so proud as a parent, right? When your middle schooler knows more about something than you do. It's like, okay, I did something right there. We're, we're yes. making progress. And so instead of saying, you know, it's such a great place for um, family education because then I can tell, ask my kids questions and I can model for them the same thing that I'm, you know, that I was modeling for them. We reverse roles and I can say, wow, you're a valuable human being. Share with me what you know. And, you know, in today's environment where everyone's clashing with each other, I really believe it's a result of modern education versus classical education because classical education's emphasis is on asking questions. And modern education seems to be on giving the right answer. And when you ask questions, you're not always seeking necessarily the right answer. You might be seeking a step towards the right answer. It's just a different way of viewing the world by asking questions instead of feeling like you have to know everything. And it feels like this world feels like you have to know everything and agree with me or you're not right. Change so much if, if we were able to apply this in a very broad sense across our education. Yeah, because I can promise you everything you love to do, you did exactly what I've described. Mm -hmm. Right? If you got a new job or you took a new course or you have a new friend with a hobby that interests you, you had to begin by, you know, asking questions so you, as an adult so you could build that vocabulary and get even more interesting questions. And then you could actually converse with them about the things they love and you're being rhetorical. And in the process of being rhetorical, you know, your friend may say, wait, wait, wait a minute. That's not really what that means. Let's ask some questions here. And what happens? You get smarter because they asked you some questions, right? And you had to think it through. So this is why we, we believe here at Classical Conversations that the classical model is just the most natural way of learning. And it helps us to know, you know, how to tackle new information. Instead of thinking you're going to be giving it to you for a few minutes so that you can take a test and move on. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the grammar. That's testing. You know these words, these basic ideas. The problem is all of education in the modern world keeps you there. It doesn't go on to say, okay, now that you know these basic ideas in biology or whatever the course is, let's pick on biology, let's pick on um, earth science. 
now that you know about hurricanes and weather and meteorology and you have this knowledge, this grammar, and you're 17 years old, can I look at you and say to you, do you think you could use any of that knowledge to make it so hurricanes are less dangerous? Does anybody ask kids big global questions like that? Mm. You know, and for them to go say, well, can you? That seems beyond me. That seems like what God's controlling. Well, the climate folks seem to think we can control it. They say people are responsible for this. Why don't you go research that and see if anybody's even talking about this question? Right? Then all of a sudden, meteorology becomes interesting because the kid's going, you mean I might be able to slow down hurricanes or make them not as uh, dangerous as they were? Or if I might find out, nope, I can't. They are what they are. That might lead them to a Christian idea of compassion. Well, then what can we do to help people who get into a hurricane in the situations, you know, that from all that damage? We're just so minimized in our focus and our um, of academics by the last hundred years of the kind of training we've received. This is really difficult to break out of it, but it is, I promise you, within each of us to do it. You know, as you were speaking just now, my mind was running to all of the scenarios and the situations in life, as you even pointed out, where we do these things, we do these steps. Um, just like you said about finding a hobby that interests us. It is the natural progression of what we do. It just, I'm so excited. It just clicked. Because <laughs> yeah, I remember, you know, when my kids came back from that glass blowing course and what did they say? Mommy, mommy, this is what we did. And this is how we did it. Of course, they were high yeah. school that age. That's very dangerous. <laughs> but, you know, but the rhetoric never ends. And the unfortunate part, too, is, you know, rhetoric is used as a negative word in our culture. People yes. will say, well, that's just rhetoric. You know, you're just saying something for the sake of saying it. But from a classical perspective, it's what we define as the um, just kind of, kind of the outcome of what do you do with the information you have? You share it with people. And it might be through an essay. It might be through a speech, something academic like that. But it also might be through a dance or a piece of art. Those are all rhetorical skills. And we bifurcate, you know, human beings and we say, oh, well, that's just fine arts. That's not really school, which is silly because if you can use your voice and your eyes, your hands for handwriting, if you can use your body to express ideas that way, why is it not schoolish or academic to say you can express it using your entire body in a play or in a playing a piece of music? And I think, you know, good educators have seen the connection between mm -hmm. the fine arts and the academic arts, but a lot of parents don't make those connections. And I'd say a lot of school systems and designing curriculum don't make those connections. So that's what's so great about homeschooling is because the academic part of it is so efficient. You can get it done in a few hours and then spend the afternoons, whether it's playing outside when they're little or maybe taking some sort of um, you know, music lessons when they get a little bit older, or they actually are the lead part, have the lead part in a play when they're in high school. They have time to do both, that kind of sit down and work on paper, the pace back and forth across the room and wrestle with an idea, go be mad and look something up and see if your passion, you know, your passion has a, um, a helpful track and go outside and do something as well as you can also be in an orchestra. I mean, the kids have time to do all kinds of academic endeavors. Too many people bring school home. And that's what makes parents frustrated and children feel like, yeah, could I do this with a bunch of friends? Because it's kind of boring all by myself. 
right? There, there's not this holistic yes. view of putting together a lot of things that make um, uh, education lifelong. And you know, Jamie, statistically, most people still only homeschool for one year. Wow. And I think it's because they just can't grasp that bringing school home is not what any of us are talking about. I, I made the same mistake. You know, as I mentioned, I was an educator before I started homeschooling. So a teacher and a principal at a private school and brought my child, my oldest child home, started homeschooling with her. That's I just that's all I knew. So I recreated the classroom in a little room in my home and you know, God kept blessing me with children. So I ended up with six. <laughs> he was going to break that habit, wasn't he? <laughs> yes. So I learned through a lot of trial and error that that, that model just definitely did not work for us. And, you know, I did some of these things that you've talked about today, but I've never holistically put them, you know, completely together and understood all of this and how it's connected. You know, I've always tried to encourage my children to use all their senses. So as you were just talking about uh, the rhetoric stage and, and expressing themselves through dance or music or, you know, that's something that I've always tried to encourage, but never seen it in the light that I see it in today. So I mean, there's so many mistakes we made because of school. So for instance, everyone thinks, you know, math, something you do at your own level and you sit at a desk with a book and um, solve problems. And yes, calculating is a portion of doing mathematics. We all need to do some of that to be competent in math. But it's such a small portion of what makes mathematicians love math and what makes people become mathematicians. They see the balance and the order and the symmetry in the world and they go, wonder why that exists. And is there a way to model it on my computer program that I'm writing so that I can go ahead and create art online with my friends, right? Mathematicians just see so much more than a black and white page in front of them. And very few parents know how to show their children how to go past that point because that's the only thing we were asked to do when we were in high school, in school was to, you know, to, to, do, to solve problems. And so just like in the whole classical model works there, math is a foreign language. And so what's happened is the natural numbers, you know, uh, they're easy for everybody to operate on. And so kids love math in fourth, fifth grade, something starts to happen. Sometimes it's a little older, it's eighth grade. Yeah. Because fractions and decimals and numbers that aren't whole but are part are introduced and they don't look the same and they don't seem like they act the same. And so people start going, well, my kid was good at math and now they're not. It must be the curriculum instead of saying, no, math just got infinitely harder. And there's, it's like a quantum level leap to deal with those yes. kinds of numbers. And then they hit eighth or ninth grade if they get through that point and are doing well. And um, a lot of parents will say, my kid was doing great through eighth grade, and now all of a sudden, they just hate math. I'm going to switch curriculums. Instead of saying, well, hold on a minute, they just said algebra. That's another quantum leap. It's going to take time for them to enjoy that and get good at it again. And what tends to happen is children who are naturally good at a subject, when all of a sudden they're not anymore, they give up because what's happened? What's wrong? I was good at this. This was easy. Versus those children that maybe have some learning issues or are dyslexic or, um, you know, just whatever the reason is they, they struggle is learning, they early on get to learn how to get past hard things. 
because the parents had to work with them that way the entire time. And so we find those, so I find those kind of students actually are the more fun to be around when they hit something new because they have questions in their mind. Okay, I overcame this before. Do I have tools to overcome it now? And the parent has seen the child struggle before, so they have a repertoire themselves of things to share. And so the classical model, what, it, what it to me helps you do is identify, or is it the grammar that you're struggling with? Because a lot of parents will say, my kid can solve a problem, they can't explain it to me. And I say, of course, because they're just grammarians. They can explain it to you when they become dialectic. But that's again, a leap in um, understanding. And they may have to struggle at the grammar side and be frustrated with algebra for a year until the light bulb comes on. Because learning is never linear. Learning is a great big jagged line of success and failure and success and failure. And modern education has taught us to look at the wrong things when the failure occurs. Classical education helps you assess what is this human going through? So you've been doing this long enough, I'm sure, Jamie, um, that you've heard people say either your child's mind is growing or their body is growing, but never both. So that year that your child grew six inches, they probably didn't do very well in school, right? This expectation that there's some sort of ordered course of study that every principal is mastered in developing curriculum, kindergarten through 12th grade, is just a lie because human beings go up and down in their abilities and in their interests and in their just cognitive um, senses because sometimes they just are not ready for a certain topic. And then all of a sudden they zoom. And if you make a decision when they're not ready or you make a decision when they zoom through information, you may make bad decisions because you're forgetting they're going to hit a wall again. Right? We all do. And so looking at the child through classical education and saying, okay, is this is a grammar problem or no, you got the information in your head. You're just not dialectic yet. You don't have really good questions and applications and breadth in this grammar so that you ask good questions. But wow, is it really wonderful after three years of struggling with Algebra 1 to see a student go right into calculus because now they're rhetorical. They did the hard work for so many years that now they can't but succeed at the next level. But we're impatient. We don't like it when our ninth <laughs> grader does Algebra 1 in eighth grade and ninth grade and 10th grade and 11th grade, even though it might be the best thing for them. Right, because we think we have to fit in the box of traditional education. <laughs> Letting go of those preconceived ideas can be difficult, isn't it? It is. And you know what? We're, we're parents who have never had this day before. I used to sometimes wake up and, I, and, you know, sometimes you wake up and you're just flying. It's a great day in homeschooling. And other days you wake up and, you know, I had a friend who would look at her kids and say, could you go away so I could have time to homeschool you? Right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah, it, it's never both. And that... I have never been presented with that day with those children. And so what I would say to them is, you know what? Mom's not sure how to run this day with you being different a day older than you were yesterday. So there might be a little bit of struggle here. So we might do a little less of something and a little more of something else because parents need to figure out how to balance what I call delight-directed education versus the rigorous academics 
you need some of both occurring. And like I said, milking the cow a little bit each day. There should be something really delightful every day that happens. And there should be something really hard you struggle with every day, right? Because that's what will build a lifetime of character. And so when we have a whole day that goes really well or a whole week, and then all of a sudden we parents hit a hard week, you know, it's really hard to remember, look, this is just a hard week. We're going to get through it differently because it's going to be good tomorrow. His mercies are new every morning. And as you were speaking, I just remembered with my youngest who has struggled with dyslexia for quite some time, that exact scenario happened with us. We stayed at the same level of math for quite some time. It was probably two, three years. We stayed at the same level, struggling with reading and putting things together for a couple of years. And then just it, you know, the light bulb came on. I guess you could say she was at the dialectic stage. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm, I'm just learning all of these. Sure. We spent all that time, all those struggles. She learned how to, how she needed to process things in order to find her success. And now she does well in math and now she is reading well. So. Oh, good for you, Jamie. So lovely. When you were saying that, I'm like, yes, I've been there. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Well, well done. I'm so proud of you. Yeah, because it's those kids that, you know, can make it so that we, um, I mean, because I have one that's dyslexic too, and I kept trying to give him out early on. And he would see what his brothers were doing and go, no, I'm smart, mom. I can do what they're doing. I just have to do it differently. Mm-hmm. And because I didn't live in his brain, I didn't quite understand how to help him. Yes. But, you know, through living with him and seeing how he worked with his siblings and getting advice from his dad, right, we, we made it happen. And so he was another one that same thing. There's three years of algebra one. And then, you know what? He went in, he applied as a math major for university and he got an almost full scholarship. Who knew? But he refused to give up on himself. That's what a human education does, right? And so we parents can make the mistakes that we do. But if we have a community of believers around us with other homeschoolers trying to help their kids also aim for Christ, you know, it wasn't just me helping him. My girlfriends were helping him too, and his brothers were helping him. That makes me feel so good because it wasn't some stranger, I don't know, giving him a test and identifying him in a certain way and then pegging him that way for the rest of his life. So so homeschooling is what does that more than say classical education. It's just the love of a family, you know, gets us, love covers so many sins and errors, right? And it does get us through so many things. Parents, we tend to not give up, whereas strangers may. Like they don't have the buy-in, right? Exactly. Such good stuff today. I hate to do it, but we've got to wrap up this podcast. And as we kind of tie up what we've talked about today, Lee, do you have any last words of encouragement to our listeners? I would say more than going after books in classical education, start reading some books on Christian education so that you can get in your own imagination a bigger view of what education could be. Then the classical model will make more sense. And so my favorite author in that realm would be to read Anthony Esselin, E-S-O-L-E-N, He has a book called How to Destroy, or 10 Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child. And it's satire. But when you read that, he just points out over and over again how we um, kind of just push our children down when we don't mean to, and ways that instead we could really encourage them and raise them up. 
And so I would, that's my best advice is read about Christian education. And then of course, read your Bible with your kids. Just if you have nothing else, but read your Bible with your kids for 12 years, it just seems so hokey, but I promise you it will work. It will make it so that you'll actually start reading other things because the Bible is so interesting. It'll make you ask questions. So that'd be two books, the Bible and Anthony Esselin's books. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate you joining us today. And I am so thankful for all that we've been able to glean and learn from you. It's really been an inspiration. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you for all that you do at homeschool.com. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in this week. You can find our podcast on homeschool.com, on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We're here to help and inspire you, our fellow homeschoolers. So if you have any topic suggestions, we would love for you to email me at jamie.gaddy at homeschool.com. Don't forget to join us for our upcoming episodes on homeschooling high school. And if you're interested in more high school homeschooling information, please be sure to visit homeschool.com under the Getting Started menu tab, and you'll find a whole section dedicated to how to homeschool high school. Till next time, as we homeschool together, I wish you grace and joy. Jamie.